Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 19. We're reading from verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be with a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning and as we discuss even delicate and difficult things, we ask for your spirit to give us understanding and to incline our hearts to follow after you and to seek your ways in our world. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Over the past 10 weeks, we've been handling the Ten Commandments, what is commonly known as the law of God. We have worked all the way, one through seven. We did nine last week, and we're returning to commandment eight, the command regarding stealing this week. If you have a Bible, I would just say have it ready, because we again will encompass all of Scripture as we look at how God develops the meaning of the commandment not to steal across the whole broad spectrum of the scriptures that he's given to us. You may find it particularly helpful to begin in Exodus chapter 22. That's where our discussion will go in just a moment. But as we have discussed the law of God and talked about hearing it and handling it properly, we've seen that there have been two key principles. And the first one is this, is that the law does not begin with a command, that the law begins with grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the commands ensue. But this is so essential and it's crucial for us as we listen to the commands of God to remember that it begins in the condition of salvation. What God has done for us to save us and to secure us for himself. That he has brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That he has liberated us, made us his own. And friends, before we hear any command to obedience, we have been secured by God through Jesus and his death and resurrection to belong to him. We've been granted his spirit. We've been called sons and daughters. God, in his first word to us, is always a word of grace. That is how he begins his address always. Now, the second principle that we've talked about that has been so important is that when we deal with the commandments, we are always dealing with the first commandment in particular. That is, that when we break any of the commandments 
2 through 10, it's because we've broken the first commandment first. The first commandment says that we are to have no other gods before him. And the only reason we break any of the other commandments is because we've loved something more primarily in our hearts than we've loved God. And so we harden ourselves to him and we don't obey. And it's very important for us as we consider the eighth commandment today to keep these two principles in mind. It's important for one specific reason. And it's simply because what we possess and what we desire to possess, and that is the subject of the eighth commandment, can overwhelm us and has the capacity to become the primary center of meaning and value in our lives. Our possessions have an enormous capacity to grab and hold our hearts. And so it's essential for us to remember that grace, the object of it is to free us, that that's its goal, that we not serve and love possessions, that we not hold what is not ours, that we not take from others. And so this morning, it is incumbent on us to talk very frankly about money, to talk very frankly about possessions, and to talk very frankly about our desires as we look into the Eighth Commandment. And so the main question in front of us is, what does it look like to walk in the ways of God about not stealing the possessions of others? There's three primary things that we'll look at as that Scripture develops, and the first is this, that we protect our neighbor's livelihood. This is what is involved in not stealing, is that we protect the well-being and livelihood of our neighbor. If you look in Exodus 22, you're going to find a multitude of references to oxen, to sheep, to donkeys, to fields, and to vineyards. I don't imagine, unless you're running a small family farm experiment like Christine and Justice Hall, that you have too many oxen, sheep, vineyards, and fields, okay? Most of you just don't live in that world. You deal in the world of this thing we call cash, of money, bank accounts. But in the ancient world, that was the stuff that capital was made of. It was oxen, it was sheep, it was donkey, it was fields. That was how you provided for yourself. Or it was also called a millstone. That was the thing that you used to grind your grain. And so in, in Exodus 22, you have all these laws and statutes given in verses 1 through 15 about protecting your neighbor's oxen, protecting his donkey, protecting his vineyard, because that was the way that your neighbor provided for he himself and his family. And so you see that the intent and the goal of the law was to care for your neighbor's interests by not taking what was not yours, that that belonged to your neighbor and he was providing for his family. And so it's very intentional that the goal and object of the law of God is that we look out for our neighbor's interest. Because when we steal and when we take from our neighbor, what we are doing is we're disadvantaging him in order to advantage ourselves. One of my Old Testament professors was a man named Bruce Walkey. Most of you would not be familiar with him, but whenever you are dealing with evangelical scholarship on the Old Testament, you are familiar with Bruce Walkey because he wrote the word book, the theological definition book. He's a wonderful, godly man, a great scholar, and he could be very practical. 
And I still remember in his class on the Proverbs, he was talking about what is unrighteous behavior. And he said, the unrighteous, if you look at all the Proverbs and put it together, that the unrighteous are those who advantage themselves by disadvantaging their neighbor. And friends, that's what stealing does, is that we take advantage of someone else in order to give ourselves a selfish advantage, and we're willing to disadvantage them in doing so. You would find other laws in Deuteronomy 22, they get very explicit about protecting the neighbor's uh, oxen, and it says even if you find the cow and the ox is just uh, out in the field and you know who it belongs to, that you were to protect it. And so not only were you to not steal it, that you were to protect and provide for the welfare by bringing it into your herd for some time and then giving it back to your neighbor. Because stealing is not just a breaking of trust. It is taking advantage of someone else. And this is not the way of the gospel, that Jesus was not one who thought about his own advantage. In fact, he disadvantaged himself to the point of death. And so this is the ethic of the church today, applied to stealing, is of course we wouldn't take advantage of someone else to advantage ourselves. That this is not the way and path of Jesus, that he laid down his life for the sake of advantaging us, of giving us the privilege of knowing and walking with God. And so our ethic and the direction of our lives is continue to walk not in the way of stealing, but in protecting the interest of those around us. Now the second development of this that we find in Scripture, it's not only that we protect the well-being of our neighbor, but we also protect the interest of those on the margins of society. When you look at the whole corpus of the law in the Old Testament, specifically in the first five books, what you find is that there are enormous number of statues related to how Israel was to handle the poor that were among her, how they were to care for the widow and the orphan and the sojourner in particular. You find this um, in Leviticus 19, and you can turn there with me. It's particularly helpful here. Leviticus 19 is where you have the Old Testament statement about loving your neighbor as yourself. Just ahead of that, in verse 9, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather, your, gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And the commandment to Israel was that they were not to be exacting about everything in their agricultural economy. That they were to leave the edges of the field or anything that got dropped in the field as they took it into the storehouse was to be left. And this was a provision for those who didn't have. And they would come and they would pick it up and they would be able to glean. And so it's actually a very beautiful system. Now that system would be difficult for us to enact today because production is done in very different ways and provision is met in different ways. But it seems to still apply to us that when we think about not stealing, there is a very positive injunction that's put on us that we are to care for the needs of those who don't have. And that begins in the household of faith and then begins to stretch into the outside world. 
John Calvin, in his commentary on Exodus 18, it's very, I mean, excuse me, on Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 18, it's very helpful. If you can turn to Ezekiel 18, in verse 7, you see here how the prophet develops this in that consistent trajectory of not stealing and also caring for the poor. There's a list given here of what the righteous are to do, how they are to walk with God. In verse 7, it says, He does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment. He does not lend at interest or take any profit. He withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man. And Calvin just observes the connection here that this is Ezekiel's own way of developing the sense of the Eighth Commandment. And that we are to seek the good of our neighbor in obedience to that commandment in generosity and kindness. And so it's important for us all in our own household finances to think about how do we provide for those who don't have what we have, who are not privileged in the way that we are privileged, of those who find themselves in dire financial straits. How do we provide for them in that way? Because we can set up our family budgets and we can glean to the edge of the field. And it's very tempting to do so, to set up your expenses and your costs to go to max out, that we can get this, we can squeeze that out of the budget. And friends, it seems like a good modern-day application not to set up our household expenses in that way. And that's challenging because there's always something else. And I understand that. But we don't want to glean right up to the edge of the field. We want to leave margins so that we can care for needs as they come up because they're always a surprise. And so how can we all attempt to apply that to help those who are helpless? And it's also important for us as a church, as our church undergoes a transition with the food pantry, to think about what lies ahead for us in caring for the poor in our city. That's important. And right now, we don't have the answers. We know that our food pantry is going to change, and now we're actively planning, and the elders and deacons are seeking to find the way. What is the way that we bring these commands, these statutes, things that God loves and cares for? How do we bring it to expression now in Jacksonville today under the lordship of Jesus? And so we protect the interest of those on the margins. This, too, is involved with stealing. The third and final piece to this of what it means not to steal is that we don't withhold that which belongs to God. Let's turn to Malachi 3. It's towards the end of your Old Testament. Malachi doesn't get tons of press, and you'll see why shortly. Chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Okay, God says, look, I'm gracious, so you're not just blighted out. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And then God asks, will man rob God? 
yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And it is interesting and provocative here to consider how the prophet develops the Eighth Commandment. And he applies it directly to the people of Israel, that they were not giving their tithes, and he calls it robbing or stealing. And the way that the tithe worked in Old Testament Israel, from our best calculations, it's difficult because the word tithe literally means 10%. And it was simply that you gave a tithe to the one who was the proper owner. And so tithes were paid to kings, and tithes could also be paid to God. But when you begin to work through the Old Testament law, what you find is that the tithe Israel paid lands somewhere between 10 and 25%. They gave of offerings of the things that God gave them from the land. Hey, if there was produce, if there were uh, the grain and the, the wine and the sheep. And if you totaled up and looked at it all, it would land somewhere between 10 and 25%. And so 10% gets you into the game from a biblical perspective. This is what Israel was to be doing. And so this was the proper way to receive God's generosity. That God opened his hand and gave He satisfies the needs of the hungry, that He gives us everything we have, and now with gratitude we respond. And it's important to understand how tithing is the response to what God gives. Consider what is developed in Deuteronomy 18. It's a very helpful metaphor. It's called the offering of the first fruits. It's difficult for us because we don't live in an agricultural economy, but it still applies to us today. But when the first fruits of the harvest were to come, there was to be an offering made. And so the farmer would go out to his field, he would collect the first fruits, and then make the offering to the priest in the temple. And what he was doing is not simply paying off the priest, but he was recognizing that this is the first part of the harvest. And everything that is going to follow And so I'll give the first part to God, recognizing that He has given the entire harvest. And God then returns the rest of the harvest to the farmer for His own use. But the offering sanctified everything that God gives. That is how the logic of tithing works in the Bible. That we're not tipping God because of a good service. That we're not just giving a tax deduction. That we're not just writing a check for philanthropy, but we're recognizing in biblical stewardship that God gives us everything. And that we're stewards only of gifts that He entrusts to us. 
and that we sanctify the rest of what he gives for our own usage by returning to him what he originally gave. And this is the idea of how biblical stewardship is to work in our lives. It's what we try to also build into you each week over and over when we collect the offering. Is that we call on our congregation to make good on their vows and their offerings. We collect those and then we bring them forward. And it is to be a joyful act of praise. It's put on the table of thanksgiving symbolically to be a gesture of that. And then we sing the doxology, praising God from whom all blessings flow. All of that is intentionally constructed to lead you in that chorus of praise that this is what your God has given to you. He's given you everything, and we return thanksgiving and praise to Him today in our own gifts. And so we don't want to withhold what belongs to God. To keep that back is to steal, the Bible says. Two important points of application for us to consider. I shared with you some data the other week at the congregational meeting. No doubt some of you may not have been there. But our deacons and elders performed an audit of our congregation's giving. Let me set the qualifications for that. I have no interest in what your numeric number is as an individual, and I will never see anything about money next to your name. I love to keep it that way. It keeps me impartial. And so when this audit was done, it was not attached to anyone's name, but it was a curiosity about how is our congregation responding to God? Are we being a faithful people or are we robbing him? That's the question. And what we found on the other side of that audit was this that 10% of our households provide 50% of our congregation's income. That is very difficult to interpret, actually, because it may just simply mean that God has blessed some and they are generous and give. Okay, And so there's nothing wrong there. The second number was that there was 26% of our households provide 75% of our annual offering. And so you go up to a a quarter of the congregation and you have three quarters of everything that this uh, congregation collects. And then the number where I think it is perhaps revealing is that 43, somewhere 43 to 50% of our households provide 90% of the annual offering. And as I said, this isn't about guilt. This isn't about making you feel bad. But what it is, is it's a call for the elders of our congregation to take seriously your stewardship because we want to protect you from greed. We want to protect you from this accusation in Malachi 3, because stewardship is not simply about the church's budget. It's easy to accuse pastors of that. Stewardship is about our faithful response to God and what he's given us, and how do we recognize his kingship over it all. And friends, when I look at those numbers, it simply means that there is probably room for improvement that over 50% of our congregation is contributing 10%. And so that's roughly about $58,000 out of 141 households. And so there's room for improvement, room for reflection. I don't know any of the percentages about who falls into where, and I don't care. But what I really care about, what I'm really interested in, is that you know the grace of God and you know what it is to respond to Him 
everything that he gives us in Christ. I was talking with a friend recently, and he was speaking of just after becoming a Christian. And he happened to have a large amount of cash in his pocket one day. He was on his way to work where he was going to deposit that large amount of cash. He was going to a meeting, and there was a missionary at the meeting who was sharing about his work. And my friend said, as I listened to him, and as I heard about his mission and his calling, my pocket was on fire. And so I asked the missionary if I could give him the money, and he said no. And I said, no, I have to give it to you. My pocket is on fire. And that's my prayer for you this morning, is that you have a little Pentecost in your pocket. (laughs) Is that it gets on fire. That you feel the passion and the the desire. All that God has has given to you. That you respond to him and that you know it goes to the causes of the kingdom, to advancing the purposes of God on earth. That's the chance and opportunity that we have. Second piece of application is to parents. Now, I understand that some of the most pressed people in the room are young families. I appreciate that as father of a young family and who's been through the, been through the mill of raising kids and, and going through graduate school and all of that. And I know what it feels like to make a sacrifice because oftentimes when you write that tithe check, you think of all the things that that could be used for. It could be very hard. And you can feel the sacrifice when it goes into the plate. But one of the things that strikes me after pastoring a very young congregation in Washington where we did some of the same work on an audit of our numbers was that those who talked to me about tithing and the sacrifice but joy that that brought into their lives. Do you know where they learned that discipline? Primarily, I would say 90% of the time, from their parents. And it wasn't questioned. It was a discipline in their life. Despite the fact that their housing took up over 40% of their incomes and it was very painful then to give another 10%, how were they going to make a family's finances work? Those who had learned that from their parents knew how to respond faithfully to God. Others learned it later, but it was oftentimes very painful. And parents, when you do this for your children, you give them a gift. You also secure the future of the church, and if you care about that future, you'll know that it's going to need faithful Christians who are devoted to it and loyal to it. And so I just plead with you, teach your children well. Teach them what it means to begin at 10%, to give of themselves to God. Now, this is all incredibly challenging, and I know that it's incredibly unpopular today to talk about people's pocketbooks and money and sex and everything else that we've talked about the past few weeks. (laughs) But when we talk about these things, frankly, it's also helpful because straight talk gives us a chance to directly experience the grace of God when our brokenness is exposed And so some of you may be asking the question, what do you do if you find yourself upside down with this commandment? That you just are not pleased where you are and how you're responding to God. How do I work past stealing if this is all that's involved with it? And there's only one thing that's needed. And it's not your checkbook to begin with. 
But what you need is a genuine encounter with Jesus. And this is where a short little man named Zacchaeus becomes your friend. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, Luke tells us in chapter 19. You may want to turn there. He was also rich. Tax collectors were somewhat like farmers in the ancient world. They were instructed to collect a certain number of taxes to pay then Rome, and then they could keep the rest. And so there was a lot of temptation to graft. And they were also Roman collaborators, and so the Jewish people who were faithful did not care for them. Zacchaeus was a man who was despised. He lived in Jericho. Jesus was passing through Jericho, it tells us, and he was on the way to Jerusalem, and Zacchaeus wanted to catch a sight of him. What's clear when you understand the way that the culture worked was Jesus was leaving Jericho, and he was about to take the steep ascent up to Jerusalem because a sycamore tree couldn't be closer than like 100 yards from a city. You didn't put trees near cities because people could then use that to sneak into the city or besiege it. And so Jesus had passed through Jericho, was leaving on his way to Jerusalem. And so that adds a bit of flavor because Jesus sees this little man standing in the top of a tree, catching sight of him. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. In other words, Jesus changes his itinerary. He goes back into Jericho to be with this man who was a robber and a thief and a collaborator. He's an awful man. But Jesus identifies with him. Jesus understood that everyone hated him. And Jesus absorbed all of Zacchaeus' shame. And he says, I'm going to your house. He completely and utterly identifies with Zacchaeus. And then he has the gall to say, salvation has come to this house. I've come to seek and save the lost. And so if you've blown it, if you feel upside down with this, Know that Jesus stands ready to say, salvation has come to your house. He's gracious and kind like that. And he does so in order to set you free. In order for you to be at liberty. Because what does Zacchaeus do? He says, all the graft I'm going to return fourfold. He suddenly has a perspective on money and possessions. He recognizes all the wrong that he's done. That he's encountered the grace of God. That Jesus is the one who has paid for our sins. And now he has the opportunity to give himself to that one. Friends, that's the grace of God. That's how it works into our stewardship that he's given us everything, that he came, but became poor on our behalf, that we could become rich. And so now we in our riches can respond to him. We can give of ourselves freely because we're not tied down to our possessions. We're not tied to our money. It's not where we find our meaning and value. That Jesus has brought salvation to our house and that puts a perspective on everything about our possessions. And so my plea with you is let the grace of God set you free. Let it lead you into faithful stewardship. Let it lead you into generosity and liberality. 
Because you know what a gift it is to hear Jesus say, today salvation is yours. That's what God wants to do for you. Take him up on it. Let's pray. Father, we do recognize all the many ways that we can violate this commandment, the way that we can fail to care for the poor, the way that we can take the possessions and endanger the well-being of our neighbor, and the way that we can rob you. Forgive us for our sins, they're many. And encounter us in your grace to set us free, that we not love possessions, that we not be overwhelmed by them and by desire for things. But may our interest be in responding to you, and may it be in advancing your kingdom, so help us. We pray all these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.